Hi, and welcome to the 33rd Womanthology podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton, and I'll be your host. Womanthology is a digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas, and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. The theme of the show today is Women in Science, ahead of International Day of Women and Girls in Science, which takes place on Friday the 11th of February. I'll be joined by Catherine Matheson, Chief Executive of the British Science Association. As ever, Inesh Santos, our Associate Editor, will be sharing the details of the news stories in the written issue. A quick reminder that you sign up for the Womanthology newsletter by filling in your details on the front page of our website, that's womanthology.co.uk. You can also join our LinkedIn community by visiting linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash womanthology and find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. I'm going to start off and say welcome to the Womanthology podcast. We have got Catherine Matheson, who is Chief Executive of the British Science Association, and we're speaking ahead of International Day of Women and Girls in Science. How are you doing, Catherine? I'm doing really well, Fiona. Thanks for the invitation. Good to be here. We're delighted to have you here. We've hopefully got some interesting questions. We're going to probe in a nice way. So I'm going to start off by asking you about your educational background and career to date. Sure. So I think I always knew when I was growing up that I was really interested in the ideas of science and would quite like a job that was sort of related to science. But I knew quite early on as well that I didn't want to do research. And it took me a little while to find out what that job was about being involved in science. Um, but not doing the science. Um, I'm a bit too flighty to spend my life thinking about one research question or one research topic. It turns out there's loads of jobs, actually, that relate to science that aren't research, but I didn't know that when I was a teenager. So I did a bit of science at school and at university, and then I started working for a company that makes and sells medicines, which I really enjoyed, actually. as a first job that wasn't waitressing or whatever. I was talking to nurses, pharmacists and doctors about how these particular medicines worked, the situations in which they could use them, the kinds of benefits that patients would get. And I found that bit of it really interesting. And I was talking to a doctor one day about my medicines. And the doctor said, you know, you're not like the other people I see who come in to talk about their medicines. And I was like, oh, no, am I doing this job wrong? <laughs> well, like, what do you mean I'm not like the others? And he said to me, oh, he said, I asked you a question about how this drug worked, how this medicine worked. And you were like, that's a really good question. You went off to find the answer and you got really interested in it. He said, most of the other people, they're interested in the science, but only in as much as it does its job. There's no kind of, you know, explaining the science of how the medicine works. That's not what brings them to work every day. And that comment, just one little sort of off-the-cuff comment from my customer, really, it got me thinking. I thought, yeah, that is the bit of this job that I really like. And I just need to find a way of doing a job that enables me to talk about science with lots of different people and get to enjoy that a bit more. I discovered there was, at the time, a postgraduate course called Science Communication, which had turned out to be a thing. So I went off and did that course and that opened my eyes. People working as journalists, people working as policy advisors, people working in charities and schools and all sorts of organisations and working on improving the flow of information about science from sciencey spaces into more public spaces and vice versa, actually, as well. And I thought, this is my tribe. This is where I want to work. So I did a bit of volunteering while I was studying for an organisation called um, it no longer exists. It was called Science Line. And people would phone up 
and ask uh, science questions and we'd try and answer them. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> I mean, it was such a cool job. You know? People would phone up and, and they would ask a question. I'd be like, that is such a brilliant question. Because I think one of the reasons science excites me is that it's about the questions we ask. It's not the facts we learn in school. You know, when I told people what I did, they'd be like, oh, I, t- I don't need a science line. I don't have any science questions. And then 10 minutes later, they'd be like, actually, I've just thought of a science question. Can you answer this one? And, and I spoke to all kinds of people about all kinds of science. I learned loads of science. And I spoke to lots of specialists. We had people on the speed dial that we could phone. We used to get a lot of questions about penguins for some reason. And we'd phone the penguin keeper at London Zoo, who were very good at uh, helping us out with that. So it was a fantastic job. And in a way, the jobs I've had since then have been about building on that practice that I developed about talking to members of the public about science. And then just doing that in different ways. So I did it for a while with forensic scientists. I went to work in a forensic science organisation. Uh, which was occasionally gruesome, but also quite fascinating. And I supported the forensic scientists in some of their work, not the lab stuff. Nobody's allowed in the lab because you can contaminate the evidence, but in helping them find out information that would support their investigations and also doing a little bit of talking with public audiences about forensic science as a career. It's not quite as glamorous as on the TV. And I enjoyed that. And then I went to work for a really interesting organisation called Nesta. They do a lot of work thinking about innovation and a lot of what we think of as innovation is applied science. The beginning of that new product or that new service or that new way of doing things is often a scientific discovery or a piece of data or research which shows we can do it differently. And that was really fascinating. And then from then, I'm oh, sorry, this is a very long story. It's Dana. a great story. Keep going, please. So I loved working at Nesta as well. And I got the opportunity at Nesta to work with lots of different kinds of disciplines, people who had like creative industries backgrounds or academic backgrounds, social science backgrounds, investment backgrounds, people that I never didn't even know you could do that as a job. And I was working alongside those people. So that was really interesting. But I missed my science a bit, to be honest. And so I took a job with the British Science Association, which is where I am now. And I've done a couple of different jobs. I've been here nearly 13 years, which sounds like a long time, but it hasn't felt like it because I've done Lots of different jobs and I've worked on lots of different projects and that's been really interesting. Wow, wow. Isn't it good that you had that serendipity to find this path because not everybody gets Mm. to do that or you don't always know at the start. So I think careers advisors at school always get a really bad rap and it's hard being a careers advisor at school because how do you communicate every single career in the world to people? But if you'd set out at the start of your career, you wouldn't necessarily have taken that path because you wouldn't know they existed. I really admire people who know exactly what job they want to do and they work towards it and then they get there and then they love it and they just carry it. Most of us are not like that. We're going from one role to another or one organisation to another or taking a bit of time out here, doing a bit of volunteering there and gradually building up this picture of what we like spending our time doing and what we're good at, developing our skills. And what's right at one time in your life might not be right for another time in your life. So the jobs we do could be the most amazing job in the world, but if you can't fit your life in, it's not going to work, is it? So I think I have been very fortunate to discover what it is that I'm really passionate about and to be able to develop skills that I can bring to that endeavour. It's a good job I'm not passionate about neurosurgery or something like that because I don't, definitely don't have the right skills for that. But I think careers advisors do a really amazing job because often what they're trying to do is draw out the young person's strengths and say, well, look, you're really good at doing this or you really enjoy being outside or you're really good at empathising with people. And that's the knowledge that will see you through a career. The jobs that are available to us change all the time, don't they? I mean, who would have thought you could be a bioinformatician when we were at school? What even is that? So the jobs will change, the world change, but knowing what we enjoy and what our strengths are and what we want to learn about, that's really helpful.
So if we were trying to imagine you on a day-to-day basis in your chief executive role, what would a fictional, typical day involve? Well, every day is different. And I've done a couple of different roles at the British Science Association, as well as the chief executive one. And what I noticed when I started being the chief executive was there's a lot more variety. And people think, oh, you're the chief executive, you must be in control of everything. But actually, (laughs) you're not really in control of your own day because people are like, oh, this problem's happened and it's you that needs to fix it. (laughs) I'm fortunate in that we don't have many crises or problems per se, but we have challenges, we have opportunities. So sometimes I feel that the chief executive's job is to do the things that it's not anyone else's job to do. And that can cover a really broad range. But typically, there's three sorts of things that happen a lot. So there's the team, the people I work with on a day-to-day basis, supporting them to be able to do their jobs in the way that they want to do them. I find that really interesting. One of the things I enjoy about work is spending time with people that you wouldn't necessarily have come across otherwise, because you wouldn't have been friends with them, your paths wouldn't have crossed. They work in a different way to you. And getting to um, see the world through their eyes. I spend a lot of time with members of my team or thinking about my team and what we need to do better. And There's also uh, a lot of work that's connected to our strategy. What do we want to do as an organisation and how do we do that? And how do all the ideas that are bubbling up in different parts of the organisation, how do they come together to make a coherent impact? And that's really hard. The third theme that crops up a lot, it's got a very boring title, but I do find it quite interesting, is the governance of the organisation. So who's in this organisation and who's responsible for what and who needs to know what? And we're a Royal Charter charity at the British Science Association, which is a really good space to be able to take a long term view, unlike a business which has to you know, make money all the time or a public body which has very clear kind of statutory functions and you can't step outside of that. As a Royal Charles Charity, you can take a very long view and say, we've got this vision. Other charities might be like ending poverty or curing heart disease or whatever it is. And we've got a 20-year plan. This piece over here will contribute to our overall aim. And that's that can be very empowering, but it can also be a bit paralyzing. If you could do anything, <laughs> how do you decide what to do? So a lot of what I do is about getting the right people together, making sure the trustees, we've got charitable trustees, making sure that they've got the tools that they need to do the job of governing the organisation and that the flow of information and people is all to working. Well, it sounds very exciting. With COVID-19, how has that impacted on your work? So some people say, I've switched to working from home, but for some people it's pivoted the focus of everything that they do. Would you say it's been a big influence on the way that you've worked over the past couple of years? COVID has had some interesting effects on the work that we do, similar to what other people have seen. So, for example, we've had to adapt to working online like everyone else. A lot of the programmes that we deliver had these components which were about going into schools or face-to-face contact with the people we're working with. And that's just had to be reconsidered. Mostly it's been fine. We've done it online. We haven't pivoted massively uh, or changed our business model, but we have seen greater demand for some of the work that we do. And that's been really interesting. We partnered with the government's research funder, UK Research and Innovation, to give grants to locally based community groups who wanted to run science activities, all the science going on in the media and people talking more about science and and groups coming to us, or we're going to them and saying, what would you do if you had a, a small pot of money usually, a few hundred pounds, and they've done amazing things. They've got groups of young people leading outdoor science activities for other young people or activities that you can do at home you can freely download them online and then do them at home yourself with just what you can find in the kitchen or the garden or whatever virtual science clubs that was another thing we even had some scientists leading hikes in the countryside and talking a bit about their work and stuff so everyone's been very inventive we work a lot with 
people who organise science festivals. So there are science festivals up and down the UK. We provide a bit of support and advice for some of those festival organisers. And they've really had to pivot during the last couple of years when live events have been impossible or extremely difficult. A lot of festivals build up a relationship with the local audience and they don't want to lose that relationship, even though you can't have a big shiny festival. And so, again, the UK Research and Innovation gave us a bit of money to work with those festival organisers. So one of them did the digital game. One of them was working on like urban design. Somebody did virtual dance workshop. Sounds really cool. I wish I was there. There's a huge amount of creativity and ingenuity that's going on that I've seen in people who organise science activities with public audience. I was going to ask you as well, a sneaky extra question. If somebody like me who liked science at school but didn't pursue science as a career, but were interested in re-engaging with science, I suppose all these activities and events and online things, it's a really good way of getting back into science where people have got kids that they want to engage with and get interested. I suppose it helps if the parents are also engaged with the science as well as the kids. Yeah, we see that happening quite a lot in the way that kids are sharing COVID with their parents. They share whatever they're interested in, whatever's going on for them, they influence the parents. And so if your child is enthusiastic about science or curious about science, you can find yourself being drawn in as well. You suddenly pitched up at this science festival going on down the road because your child's interested. And then you realise, maybe I'm a bit interested too, actually. Maybe the things that I thought of while I was at school, it's quite a narrow slice of what science can really be about. I've had people say to me things like, science is not for me, I'm not very sciencey. And then they tell me about this amazing experiment they've done with cooking or gardening or something where they've gone, well, I wanted the best recipe for this. So I tried it 14 different ways. And I was like, okay, so you're doing research, really? I would call that, you know? And they're like, well, I didn't think that's what being a scientist was like. Because we have this idea that you have to be a professional scientist. Somebody has to pay you. You have to have a white coat. You have to be in a lab with lots of glass test tubes. And there are a few people doing that in that way, but most scientists, that's not what they look like and it's not what they do. They're doing a much wider range of things. And so I think this breadth of ways of being scientists and things that science can be about, that's a big feature of the activities that we like to get involved with. And yeah, Fiona, people show up a lot going, well, you know, I did quite like science in school, but then I wanted to do something else and it drifted away from me or I drifted away from it. It's not that I hate it, but it didn't seem right for me or my life. And that's... People rediscovering their love for science or just their friendship for science. It doesn't have to be an all-consuming passion. That's a really rewarding aspect of the work that we do, seeing people um, peel away the layers and find, again, the bit where they go, oh, I did used to be really curious about the universe. Yeah, I love the Science Museum in Manchester. And there was the Air and Space Museum. I think that got amalgamated into the Science Museum, but it was, oh, just going there was just Fab and that excitement. Yeah. I think we, I need to refine that. That's what I need to do. So I'll make this yeah. an ongoing project. I'll report back to you all the, all the interesting things I've found. And how do you feel the pandemic's altered the public's perception of the work of scientists? I think we've touched on this a little bit. Yeah, we've seen a rise in people's awareness of those fields of science that have been brought to the fore during the pandemic. So healthcare, medicine developments, epidemiology. There was a period during the pandemic where everyone was discussing our numbers for the rate of infection and occasionally it still pops up doesn't it in the media and I thought this is the most obscure piece of scientific jargon and suddenly everyone's got to grips with it Um, hopefully we'll have forgotten about it in a couple of years time but I think it's been to the forefront because it's affected all of our lives at the same time it's been very much in the forefront of people's minds so it's brought more attention to scientists and some of the scientists whose role is usually quite hidden so the researchers that have been popping up in the media 
you wouldn't normally do that. You'd be invited to come and talk about the research. And so I think it's been great. There's been some excellent quality communication by government scientists, as well as active researchers and a whole host of organisations. I think there's a lot to celebrate there. One of the things that's been disappointing is that people who are working to tackle COVID-19 by providing information in the public are increasingly vulnerable to quite a lot of negativity, online abuse. I would go that far. Some of them, scientists who are choosing to speak out about their work because they think there's a need for people to know about the work they're doing. My experience of working with scientists is that if you ask them, why did you want to go into science? Like what's really motivating you? There's often a very altruistic motive. And sometimes they're just excited. You've got to have a job and I fancy doing that. But actually there's often a driver that's about, I want to make the world a better place. I want to find a cure for cancer or I want to protect the environment. So scientists have been tapping into that, even if they're normally quite happy working away in the corner with nobody asking them anything. If asked, they really want to come forward and tell you what it is they're doing. They love it. So it's been a real shame when people have been personally attacked. I don't mean legitimate discussion of somebody's points. I think that's very valuable, but there's been a lot of online abuse. We did a blog about it quite recently. It doesn't seem to be getting any better either. So that's a real shame. But on a more positive note, I think we've seen greater trust in science. So the Wellcome Trust run a global monitor survey, which asks across the world, do you trust scientists a lot or a little bit? And that rose from 34% in 2018 of people asked were saying, I trust scientists a lot. And that's gone up from 34% to 43%. So it's quite a rise by the end of 2020. And I think it's probably going up um, even more. And trust is essential. I'm not saying people should just trust scientists because they're scientists, but we have to have conversations as a society about what kinds of science we want. And I think we need to trust that scientists are telling us the right information to the best of their ability. What is known about something, that's what they're saying. It has been confusing at times, hasn't it? I know my mum keeps saying, these scientists, they're changing their minds. I'm like, mum, they're not changing their minds. (laughs) The data is different. And so you have to keep up with that. They don't just sort of whimsically change their minds. Well, not very often anyway. We're all human. Some of the work that we've been doing during the pandemic has been thinking about who are the voices who are missing from these conversations that we're having about the pandemic or about other aspects of science. And one audience that I think is quite overlooked is the older teenagers, so 14 to 18, who have a lot to say on a whole range of topics, but aren't often invited into the conversation. The conversations uh, are taking place with a bunch of adults because of the jobs they do or whatever. They're often excluded from decision-making, they don't vote, and yet they have the most skin in the game on any decision we make about the future because of their age. So we did some polling of 14 to 18 year olds in 2020, and 33% of them said they're more likely to consider a career in science now, having seen some of the jobs that you can do as a result of the pandemic and seeing what the point of it is absolutely that science is a big part of our lives we should all take an interest and so I think that's quite promising that we've got lots of young people coming through now who are poised to think about how they can use science to make society better whether they go into a career or not but they see science as a tool for making it better and we see that as well we run workshops with young people 14 to 18 year olds about the impact of science on society and what they would like that impact to be We call them future forums, forums for thinking about what you want the future to look like. And we did one a couple of years ago, so during the pandemic, but it was a much wider range of issues, included COVID-19, but it was about ethics and transparency of genetic technology, all that sort of thing. And they really got into the conversation. We had these forums staged over a few weeks and they were talking directly to researchers 
who do blue skies research on these topics and really finding out but how could this affect my life what does this mean for my family what do my community think about it and really valuing the opportunity to speak up in that way the young people we were working with were saying to us that they don't think scientists do enough to engage them in conversations about the implications of their research so we'd be happy to share what we've learned doing these future forums with other organizations if they were interested because i think it's been a really valuable tool for us and the researchers that we work with we're always interested so if ever there's findings that you want to share i know our audience is always keen i'm going off on a slight tangent here i did geography at a level and you had physical geography and then you had mm. human geography and i always like the human geography better but it's almost like with science you don't get the human side of science much. It was always, I'm doing an experiment and it's very practical and it's this. Imagine the syllabus has changed since then anyway, quite a few mm. times, but that human side is fascinating. So we'll keep mm. speaking with you about those if we can, as, as things evolve and there's, there's new things happen. That'd be great. And I love the idea of human chemistry and human physics. What does this mean for humans? Some people really enjoy the abstract, you know, how does the universe fit together? And there's a kind of beauty, a mathematical beauty in that. And some people are attracted to that. And that's great, obviously. But I think a lot of people are like, yeah, OK, that's, that's nice. What does that mean for us yeah. as humans? Yeah. And I think um, we, there's always more we could do, I think, to bring the curriculum to life in that way. We've had a thought that, that can go off and turn into something else, potentially. We've maybe created a course or a, a session or something yeah. there without realising it. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and diversity of thought in science I think it's a, a question that probably pops up quite a lot but I, I'll ask it again it's maybe a bit of a cliche question but why is diversity of thought so important in science what difference does it make yeah I mean it's crucial to get diversity of thought interestingly if you look at the people who get handed Nobel prizes the most original research they are often teams of people who are drawing on lots of different disciplines and lots of different backgrounds. They're often international teams, people who've grown up in different countries or with different educational systems. And they're bringing all of that. You trained in biology, you trained in chemistry, you trained in human geography, and bringing it all together to create those kind of brilliant research outcomes. And that same principle is true. It's not only in academia, in university, in our universities, but it's true in businesses and in everyday settings as well, that the breadth of experiences and ideas that we can bring together are more likely to yield the outcomes that we're trying to reach. And at the BSA, our goal is for science to be more representative, more relevant, more connected to society. And in order for that to happen, uh, we need to be very clear about who's not currently represented in science, who's not currently being served by science. Science is so embedded in the fabric of our day-to-day -day lives and it affects everyone. So maybe you're deciding what to have for your tea or when to get a vaccine or what goes in the recycling bin or you're involved locally in campaigning to protect your local environment. Every decision we make, there's a thread of science running through it. And so we want everyone to feel confident that they can connect with that science, that people go, well, I don't know what decision to make about transport use in my local area because of the science. I don't really understand that. I don't want to get my head around it. People need to feel welcome to grapple with these topics. And to do that effectively, we need better representation across organisations that are involved with science. So that would be universities, it would be businesses, it would be schools, it would be all kinds of organisations that use science in some way. You need to represent audiences at every level. And I think that will help the thing that we call science to understand the different perspectives and to include them and help more communities and make even more breakthroughs. Catherine, how is the organisation going to be marking International Day of Women and Girls in Science this year? So it's the 11th of February. Yeah, what have we got coming up? What can we expect? 
Uh, yeah, so the International Day of Women and Girls in Science is around the corner. We are going to be profiling some of the women who feature in our Smashing Stereotypes campaign. This was a campaign that we launched in 2020 as part of British Science Week, which happens every year in March. And we were just sort of doing it informally for many years, trying to feature people that you perhaps don't fit what you think of when you think of a scientist who challenge those stereotypes. And there's lots of people out there willing to step forward and be a really active role model, which is great. And so we thought, let's wrap this together. Let's make it a thing. And so our Smashing Stereotypes it's campaign, and there's loads of great women. So we're going to be featuring some of those in our blog and our social media posts and celebrating their amazingness and showing not just the work that those women and girls do, not just sort of going, well, you're you're a girl or you're a woman and so we're featuring you, but also showing a little something about what their daily life is like, what their daily work is like. We talked earlier, didn't we, about this sort of stereotype of uh, everyone who's a scientist working in a lab with their white coat and their test tubes and it's much broader than that. So trying to give a flavour of, well, you're standing on the edge of a volcano dropping things in to measure how hot it is or you're working with a bunch of children trying to figure out how people learn words. They're everywhere, right? So let's try and celebrate and open the door a bit on what those worlds are like. And how can womanthology readers get involved with the work of the association and support what you're doing? What would you like from us? Oh, well, we'd love your readers and listeners to get involved. They are very welcome. Come along. If you're in the Leicester area or you've got family or friends there, come and see us in September. We're bringing the British Science Festival to the Leicester area in partnership with De Montfort University. So there's going to be loads going on there. You'll be able to find out about the research that De Montfort University has been doing and lots of other researchers as well. And we like to make our science festival quite interactive and quite fun. So come along then that'll be great the other thing that's happening quite soon actually in March the 11th to the 20th of March will be British Science Week this year so we've got loads of resources on our website there'll be people doing things all over the country because there always is so do have a look locally if there's a university or a business in your area they may well be doing public events in person or digital the world's our oyster these days right but the things on our website that you can have a look at you can have a look at smashing stereotypes people they're fantastic and there are activity packs one of the most popular pages we can barely keep up really the most popular pages on the british science week site are these activity packs and so we've got one for early years if your children are really little or you work with really little children science activities you can do with them at home or at school or in nursery or whatever. We've got one for primary age children, one for secondary age children, and also one for, we've labelled it for community groups. So for groups that aren't particularly just focused on children, but want to get involved in Science Week anyway. You can have a look at what's going on locally on the website that's called sciencelive.net. So all of the events get posted on there. So do get stuck in or even, I mean, do your own. Be like, hey, at Science Week, I'm going to run my own experiment on what Fruit tastes best in my gin and tonic. You know, do what you like. Make sounds, it your own. Sounds like a good experiment to me. <laughs> I'm up for it. We'll do it. We'll do it. We'll put a pack together and then people can uh, get involved inter- interactively. All these ideas okay. that are coming out today, Kevin, is, work, is working incredibly well. So we've got a lot of what's coming up for the organisation. What about what's coming up for you? What are you excited about? What's coming up for you? Well... I've got some adventures coming up hopefully this year. So I will be stepping down from the British Science Association. It'll be like leaving my family home, I think. I feel so at home here and I've been part of it for so long. Like I've been here 13 years. So it's a chance for somebody else to step up and run this space. 
So a shout out to anyone who's listening to this who thinks it might be them. It might be you. There'll be people out there thinking, oh yeah, I'd like to work at the British Science Association. So yeah, get in touch. That would be fun. And so I'll be really sad to leave the team behind. I'll be following them, I think, in a slightly too close way on Twitter, Brit Science on Twitter and on the website and across all the social media channels. I'll be like, hey, how did that project turn out? Hey, are you all right? They'll be like, we're quite busy, Catherine, please go away. And I have a new job with another science engagement organisation based in London called the Royal Institution. So I'm really looking forward to working with them. They're they're a fantastic team as well. So um, I've been to an event there. It's got an amazing... It's a very historic lecture theatre. Yeah, the rounded one, the big rounded one, the big tall one. Yes, I've been there. I think for Ada Lovelace Day, I think I was there. Oh, probably, yeah. 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 Well, come and see me when I'm there, because that'll be fun. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, super exciting. So when's that all coming to fruition? When's that happening? I'm here for another couple of months. So there's no excuses for not tidying up all the things I've been working on and doing a proper handover. So what that means is anytime anyone asks me a question, anyone that I work with asks me a question at the moment, I give them a really long answer because I want all of the information to give to them. And they're like, I just wanted like, yes, no, Tuesday, blue. What's this ancient history you're giving me? But I've got a couple more months of doing that, trying to hand everything over. I want this organisation to flourish even more than it has in the last few years. And then I'll start the new role in just after Easter, actually. Well, if we can keep in touch with you, we'll follow your progress. And absolute pleasure speaking with you today. As I said, I could probably go on speaking with you with the rest of the day. Thank you so much for your enthusiasm and your support as well. And whatever we can do to support you moving forward, we will do. But thank you so much for your time today. It's been such fun. Thank you, Fiona. It's been great to get to know you. Let's keep in touch. Yeah. Hello, my name is Ines Santos. I am the Associate Editor of Womanphology and I am here to tell you all about our new Women in Science issue, which marks International Day of Women and Girls in Science 2022, taking place on Friday the 11th of February. The stories include Charlotte Chelande is a senior scientist integrator for TNO at the Holst Center in the Netherlands and talks about leading the wearable electronics team that creates innovative wearable products like a smart plaster that measures your heartbeat and a shirt that gives you breathing guidance. Professor Frances Seprovic is a distinguished professor emeritus at the University of Melbourne and was the first female professor of chemistry in her state. She shares how it is never too late to follow your dream as she first began further study as a single mother whilst working full-time. Dr. Freddie Otto is a senior lecturer in climate science at the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment at Imperial College London, and she was recently announced as a British Science Association Honorary Fellow. Freddie shares how inclusion in science is everyone's responsibility and how things don't change by us just saying we need to change them. Catherine Fletcher MP for South Ribble in Lancashire gives an insight into her role as a member of the House of Commons Select Committee for Science and Technology. 
Finally, Professor Ijeoma Uchebu is a pharmaceutical nanoscientist at University College London and the University's envoy for racial equality, and she talks about trying to move the needle on race equality in science. Do check out our website, womanphology.co.uk, to read the full stories. And that is all from me. Sadly, that's all we have time for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share the link for the show on social media and also follow the show. Your feedback is really important, so please do rate and review the show in your podcast app. Join us for the next episode where we meet awesome women working in energy and sustainability. <laughs>